Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to episode 16 of Purposely Podcast. This interview is with the co-founder of a charity based in the UK called Hope and Homes for Children. They work globally. They're all about ending institutional care for children, closing orphanages and giving children a loving alternative. I welcome Mark Cook, who was a colonel in the British Army. He joined the Gurkhas. He's an amazing story, which really centres on a promise he made to children in the Bosnian War. I think you're going to enjoy it. He's the co-founder of Hope and Homes for Children. Um, he's, he's not involved in that on a day-to-day basis now, but we'll hear about that in a minute. Um, the other founder is his wife, Caroline, who isn't on the call, but we'll talk about her also. Mark, a really warm welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much, Mark. And just to clarify, um, I'm sitting in Auckland, uh, and it's kind of latish in the evening, and you're in Salisbury today? Salisbury, out in the countryside, um... And it is 9.27 or something. No, yeah, something like that. Quarter to 10, yeah. Um, Great. Yeah, good to talk to you anyway down in Auckland. Yeah, really good to connect. And I always kind of try and start my podcast by um, asking a question around what is or was, what yeah, what is Hope and Homes for Children's um, elevator pitch? What does it do and who does it do it for? Um. Right. Well, um, the, the whole aim of Hope and Homes for Children was to give a chance in life to save the lives um, of the most vulnerable children in the world who were caught up in wars, disasters and disease. Um, and originally, we thought that what they needed was a roof over their head, uh, food, um, shelter, security. And so we started by uh, building orphanages and repairing orphanages in war zones and places like Bosnia and Sierra Leone and Eritrea and things. And then we realized that actually what the children needed most, what every child we all need most is the love of a family. So that is what we do now. We are changing, transforming the way countries look after their institutionalized children. So. It, it's opposed to putting them into an institution, you find family-based care. So we are transforming and working with governments and demonstrating on the ground how you change the whole culture of these countries. And so many countries do have orphanages where they warehouse the, the, the vulnerable children. And you, your role, you, you know, you were, as I said, co-founder. So you, I, I have you down as, as um, in a presidential role. Would that, would that be fair to say? I no, I, I don't call myself anything really. But <laughs> we're, just, we're just co-founders. Um, and when we decided after 10 years of running the charity, and I'll come to that if you want later on, why we, we handed over, um, we, we really had uh, three main uh, uh, purposes. Uh, we were became ambassadors for the um, for the charity, uh, advisors when whenever ever asked for, 
and to advocates for the cause. So they were, that, yeah. that's what we do. So we, we are here on the sideline. People, you know, still talk to us. They still think we're the, you know, where they know we're around. And that I think that gives them a little bit of those people who have been supporting us for 25 years. It gives them a degree of confidence to know that we're still here. We're not at the helm, but we're still very much at the heart. And of course, our logo is a heart and our, our whole mission is a heart. It's about love, about, and I unashamedly, right from the beginning of, of the charity, have talked about love. Love is the key to what we do. Yeah, and that thing stands you apart I, from other um, organisations. So I think this is a really good time to kind of try and, if you don't mind, go back almost 30 years. And um, a story that I, I've um, been fully engrossed by was um, your brush with the broadcaster, Martin Bell, um, who I think was your first... Um, your first donor um would you would you mind regaling some of the story of martin bell and and how um hope and homes came about yeah um i was very lucky i spent 30 years in the army um in the gurkhas some of the listeners may have heard of the gurkhas from nepal working with them mainly in the far east and other places um and my last job in the army was as commander of the British UN contingent in Bosnia at the outbreak of the Balkans war in 1992. And um, it was, for some may not even remember it now, but it was a, a, a horrendous war. Um, and um, I was appalled when I found, you know, when, when I saw, what I witnessed, I'd never seen anything like that in 30 years of my military career. And, and one day I came across an orphanage which had been um, bombed and shelled by the by one of the sides, in fact, the Serbs, and uh, with the children inside it. And they got out one night after 60 days, uh, no, 20 days of, of um, under shell fire. And, um, and I met them sometime later, and they were in a, in a sort of holding camp somewhere. And um, I spent a an afternoon playing football, mucking about with them. And then at the end, I made the most stupid promise in my life and said, don't worry, I will be rebuild your orphanage. And one little boy put his hands up and said, when, by?" And I said, by Christmas. And then I, I realized I had made the most stupid promise in my life. Um, it was a much bigger task than I thought. Uh, it cost a million pounds. I had to leave the army to do it. And so that, that was the start, really. And we did it. We, we did it by Christmas, but it took 18 months as opposed to six months. Um, and then we thought, what now? And it was then that I realized that, um, in fact, I, I read a book which had just come out from an ITN correspondent called Michael Nicholson, who adopted a little girl from Natasha from Sarajevo. And I read this book, and in the middle of the night, I woke up and just sat bolt upright in my bed, and I, I had this little message. It was extraordinary. It's never happened again. I hope it won't. Uh, saying you've got to go down to Sarajevo and find out what's happened to the children who he didn't take out of this orphanage, which was being shelled. So we went and saw Mike, and uh, he got us accredited as ITN correspondents. And he and um, he, and Caroline and I uh, went down to to Sarajevo, and. It was in Sarajevo that 
I um, thought, well, Martin Bell was at the same school as me. He was a little bit older than me. Um, so I'll, I'll look up Martin, and he was the doyen of uh, BBC war correspondents at the time in Sarajevo. And I found Martin, and uh, I explained the situation. And as we were talking in ways he might be able to help, somebody came rushing in and said, there's a big battle going on downtown. And Martin said, come on, quick, jump in. And we jumped in his Land Rover, which he fondly called Miss Piggy. And we went into the middle of this battle. We didn't know where what was happening, but we stopped right in the middle of a, a, a car park, which had no cars. It was just a big, a big area of concrete. And we were there in the middle, trying to work out what was going on. And bullets were actually flying over our heads from one side to the other, um, because the Serbs were on one side and the Bosnians were on the other. And um, the, the cameraman eventually said, Martin, I think we are the targets. And Martin said, yes, I think we might be. And a few seconds later, a stick of mortar bombs fell in front of us. And uh, Martin was hit in the stomach and uh, we dragged him to the Land Rover and got him back to the field ambulance. And it was just coming up to the BBC one o'clock news. And so the sound man or the cameraman, well, we got on their telephone to England uh, and said, you know, this has happened. And they said, well, you better put um, this chap Mark Cook on, on, the, on the, instead of him then. So I found myself standing there with this battle going on. And um, they, they said, um, news just coming in that Martin Bell has been uh, injured in Sarajevo. Um, we're going over now live on the ground. Colonel Mark Cook, can you tell us what's happening? And I said, yes, he's all right. He's, we've got him back to the field hospital. Um, but actually, I'd come down here to talk to him about a project. I've got to rebuild an orphanage for children which have been bombed and choked. And of course, I, I managed to get that in before they could stop me. And of course, this went, went viral. And, um, and really, that was the start of it. Yeah, you t- um, you're a new star. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when you, yeah, when you uh, need uh, publicity in a fundraising, but you need publicity, and I was incredibly lucky right from the start that I got publicity. But I think I was seen as a bit of a maverick, a bit of a an oddball. You know, here was this British Army Colonel you know, doing this um, work with with children in war zones, and. Um, you know, they I've got a you know lot of interest, and of course, which was wonderful because you know that's what you need. Mm, yeah, and the orphanage that was bombed, so that was in a place called um, Lippic. The first, the first one was in Lippic in Croatia. That's yeah, yeah. where I made the, the promise. But the uh, when we started uh, Hope and Homes for Children, I did that. I rebuilt that under the umbrella of another Scottish charity. Um, but when we went to Sarajevo, Caroline and I had decided to start our own charity uh, from scratch, which we called Hope and Homes for Children. Um, and um, we neither of us had any experience of charity, um, how charities run or anything. We were totally naive um, and made so many mistakes on the way. Um, but um, we had absolute belief and passion for what we were doing. Um, and so- yeah. somehow yeah. we muddled through. And Mark, do you remember some of those 
mistakes or one in particular that still stands out to the I day? suppose the biggest mistake was not asking the children what they wanted. Um, we had presumed in our ignorance and arrogance, you can say, that what children want is a roof over their head, they want security, they want a nice cozy bed, they want food, and they want to go to school, and they want to go out and play football. Well, if you can provide all those things, you, you know, orphanages have those things, don't they? Everybody thinks so. I mean, I thought so, Caroline thought so. This is what orphanages are for. They're for children who haven't got families and homes. And somebody said one day, have you ever asked them what they want? And I said, well, it's pretty obvious what they want. But he said, well, just go out and ask them. And so in our trips overseas, by then we were working in several countries, um, building and repairing orphanages. And every time I asked the children, what do you want? They always said, please, please find me a, a home. I want a home. I want a family. And there was one little boy in Sudan and streets in Khartoum. One evening I was sitting there with some street children and he said he wanted a, a home and a family. And I said, well, what is a home and a family? And he said, love. And wow, that was the, that was the moment when we realized that we got it completely wrong. You do not find love in an orphanage. Uh, some orphanages are better than others. Um, most orphanages, and I've been into possibly several hundred now around the world, they, some are clean, some are, um, do good work, but there is never, ever any, that sort of familial love, that um, absolutely um, unrestricted love of a family. And this is what children want. Everybody wants to be part of a family. If you haven't got family, you've got nothing. So we then had to do a 180 degree turn. Instead of building orphanages, repairing orphanages, getting children out off the streets and putting them in the orphanages, we started by closing down orphanages. And the first country we started in was the, at the time, the most topical and the biggest problem was Romania after the overthrow of Ceausescu, when there were over 100,000 children discovered in these warehouses, these horrible places, I mean, disgustingly brutal, awful children tied to their carts, just nodding and wasting away. And we started by closing three orphanages there at the same time. And people said, you're absolutely mad. It can't be done. And I said, it's got to be done. And um, it was very lucky because Romania at the time wanted to join the European Union and the European Union said, if you want to join us, you've got to clean up your Child Care Act. Um, and so we were there at the right place at the right time and we, we showed them how to do it. We were learning ourselves. I mean, no, it hadn't been done before. How do you get 100,000 children out of institutional care back into families? And you can't just take them out and say, right, I'll give you this one, you that one. It is a very, very meticulous, painstaking business of tracking, tracing um, families and finding out what the conditions are and would they want their children back, etc., etc. So that was the biggest mistake, I think, 
um, were we not mm. asking the recipients of um, what we were doing, what they really wanted. And I'll give you another example of that. When we were in Mozambique, there was a boy there in the town of Bayra um, who had no use of his legs and he crawled around uh, on his hands and knees. And, and he was a lovely boy. He, he had the most beautiful smile and everybody loved him. And, um, and they, you know, they gave him food and he, you know, he, he, was, he was as happy as he could be. And there were three charities down there who also said what this boy really needs is a wheelchair. And three charities gave him a wheelchair. Um, they didn't ask him. They said, here you are, you've got a wheelchair. And so, you know, he, you know, smiled, you know everyone took photographs and he wheeled himself around and nobody took any notice of him because he was like everyone else. And then sometime later, the charity went back and said, where's the wheelchair? He said, I, I've given it away. It's no use to me. Um, nobody takes any notice of me when I'm in a wheelchair. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a simple example of you've got to ask your, the people you're trying to help what they want. You don't say, now, I think what you want is this. No, it's what they want. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think you you learned the lesson and, and you know, grand style because, you know, tr tracking the, the sort of future of the charity, you know, now it's all about working alongside governments, um, other organisations to dismantle institutional care or orphan orphanage-based care systems. And I think that's a really good lesson for anyone in the do-good or charity spaces to don't don't do to others you know as you see the world find find out from them what what they need especially when in, you know sort of uh working in that international development space um absolutely crucial and there's there's lots of examples of people who have spent thousands and thousands of dollars and pounds on you know items buildings that are of, of no use to that community and all they all they needed to do was just ask the question um so and and you know it, you would have been sort of pushing upstream a bit um, i imagine because easy charity money that you would, would raise would be to, to build something but here you were sort of trying to dismantle uh, and rehome uh, or it was easy yeah. when we were building homes because people could see some people said well how much does a, a home cost and in Ukraine, which was one of the countries working on then, we used to, uh, we, for 15,000 pounds, we could build a really nice home for, you know, and we built over 60 homes around the country for, for, well, these were small family homes, but I mean, they, um, but they were, they were uh, not natural family homes. Is, is, um, um, and so, but I also think that you've got to, actually demonstrate and yes we are working with governments we are saying to governments you've got to you've got to uh, clean up your childcare system and we will show you how to do it it's no good i mean the, the world is full of experts and consultants who go around pontificating saying what you ought to be doing is this and they've never done it themselves they and you know we have to demonstrate in each country how to do it and by doing it ourselves and um, creating the model and the model that we created in in Romania and then developed further in Rwanda so you've got the European model and the, and the African model and they're very similar but of course the the, the, the types of, of um, people and lives they lead is, is different 
but it's creating the models which you then adapt you take to another country and you get the people in the other countries to come and look at the uh, at your models in Romania Rwanda where Ukraine wherever we are um, yeah so I, I think it's not just about being consultants and saying this is what you should be doing and and but it is actually proving that it works and and so that comes into monitoring and evaluation and which we didn't do enough of right at the beginning we just you know built buildings and repaired buildings and we would you know say to somebody well you know a room in this building will cost you know ten thousand pounds oh yes i like that and i want a, a, a label on the door please saying it's this is from the rotary club of you know livings or something like this um of course and and that's yeah no no child wants to live in a in a building which has rooms named after the people who've got them you know it's an unnatural thing so um yeah it's but, but working with governments that is that has been difficult and um some governments uh, have been very very difficult to work with and and still are i mean we after it's still after 20 years working in ukraine uh, we have great problems. Yeah, because there's a whole industry behind um, orphanages and institutional care, isn't there? Like, there's a there's a lot of money involved and a lot yeah. of, and, I mean, and power. Some of the some of the so, evidence so, that yeah. we gained on the way was absolutely horrifying. You know, children disappearing out of orphanages, and you say, where have they gone? Nobody knows, but you find out that they were sold by the director of the orphanage to somebody in the county council who, who had uh, a, a link with somebody else and, you know, the child just disappeared. And um, we know for a fact that a lot of them were sent abroad for, uh, um, you know, for, t for terrible reasons for, in some cases, body parts, um, prostitution, slaves, you know, things like this. Um, so, and um, it's a it's an industry, Gosh. and and it's also spawned. Often it is also spawned the tourist in industry in poor countries. Um, take Nepal for an instance, um, a country which is close to my heart, having served with the Gurkhas. Um, that you know, there are lots of people go to Nepal because it's a very beautiful country, and there are lots of very destitute, vulnerable children, poor children, you know, walking around in rags and things, and so. People have got that. I have this. You know, we'll we'll get a we'll get the building. Put you know thirty children in, and then as the you know the trekkers that go passing by say, "Oh, please, you know, can you help our orphanage? You know, we we've got all these children, and they you know, oh God, yes, all right." And they write checks and then send out money each month and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, without without any um, you know checking and uh, making sure, and, and uh, the whole industry of, of volunteer tourism. Um, uh, is being spawned as a result. Mm. I mean, I mean, you. One, two, two things that um, always stood out for me with Hope and Homes is you have a a real ability to attract fantastic people. So your team has always been to me really awesome, uh, and so I think that's led the path to real impact. Because uh, you know, considering Hope and Homes never really got huge um identity you weren't trying to grow a brand yeah. you were trying to be impactful um but but your but your team of um you know 
like you said, working with government's incredibly difficult. Uh, and but I know from personal experience that you've had real, you know, having worked with you, um, real impact, which is is brilliant. Just moving away a little bit from that, and just reflecting back on that, um, what we said around love being the most important thing. Um, where where did you grow up? And, and yeah, no, I was, I was very, very lucky. I had a brother and, and a mother and a father, and we are a very united family. I never remember them arguing. Um, they made great sacrifices to send us to a good school. That's where I met um, Martin Bell. Um, and, you know, I, I took it for granted. You know, most children do take what they got for granted. It's only now that I realise, God, you know, I, was the, I have been one of the lucky ones in life. Incredibly lucky, you know. And um, it, it all stems from my childhood. And very often, um, you know, when I, you know, over the last 25 years, I've given hundreds of talks to various groups of people to, you know, to the top, right, the, the whole spectrum. And if I've got a, a room full of rich, wealthy people, I'll often say to them, why are you here? You know, let's look around and I say, no, tell me why you're here. And, um, and I say, I, I guess that most of you are here because you had parents and family that loved you and gave you a good start in life. And, and that really makes them think. And I say, what would happen to you know, if you had been ended up on the streets and in an orphanage, you wouldn't be here now. And, and so trying to make people, I've always said that fundraising and talking to people, you don't give them the facts and figures first. What you do is you capture their hearts, capture their imaginations. You, you really um, make them understand in the first minute what it is that you're doing. You're, you're, you're grabbing their hearts. Once you've got their hearts, then you can talk facts and, and figures and things. Um, and mm -hmm. the one thing I think that has differ differentiated us Possibly, and you would know this better, Mark, because you have dealt with more charities than I have. You see, you've seen hundreds of charities from the outside looking in. Um, you can make the comparison, but mm. and passion for what we do um, is um, right throughout the, the whole organisation. It's been right from the start. We are passionate. Caroline and I are passionate about what we do, and if the if the founder of an organisation yeah is not passionate, is only half passionate. Well, it's a part-time job and, you know, okay, well, never mind. I mean, it took over our life. It has taken over our lives. It's still, you know, it's still there. It's our lives. Um, and we are, we are yeah. I'd like to think, yeah. better people for it. Um, uh, but it's passion that moves yeah. people. It's not, it's not facts and figures. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that kind of takes me on to, um, you know, a, a part of the story I want to talk to you about. So um, this is my version of it. But um, someone one day put an advertisement in a, in a local yeah. or paper in Sirencester. Uh, and, it was, and it was noticed by an employee of then, uh, it might not have been J.R. Rothschild Assurance, could have been SJP, but St. James's Place Foundation by that, or St. James's Place by that stage. But you... Um, you then ended up, I think, on that Tuesday night. So it was a combination of things. There was a note in the paper. Then you ended up on This Is Your Life with Michael yeah, Carter. Yeah. Michael Aspel? Was no, that no. 
Opaki. Tell me about the. Tell, well, tell they, me about the. Well, um, yeah, you're, you're right. Then um, I, I, somebody said we, we met a chap one day, and he said, "Look, I can't give you much um, you know, financial help, but I I uh, buy uh, uh, space, advertising space in magazines, article, um, newspapers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and I can put in an advertisement for you in any magazine." Well, you know, I've got a space and nobody, you know, wants to use it. And so I said, that's fine. So we gave him some examples of, you know, of different sizes and, and and thought nothing more about it until we got this telephone call from uh, a lovely lady. It's at, it, it was Jay Rothschilds then when we started. And um, and she rang uh -huh. up and uh, yeah. uh, one evening and, and spoke to Caroline and said from Jay Rothschilds and our, our, our ears pricked up. Uh, we got excited, and so, and then I was called for an interview with um, with the, the the hierarchy, um, you know, Mike Wilson, who was the founder, and Watson, Mark Weinberg, etc. And that was the start of our relationship, um, and um, it was just pure luck. And this partnership with St James's Place Foundation, uh, well, it became after a short period of time, it, it became St James's Place Foundation. Um, was the luckiest thing that happened to us because they they became and still are our biggest um, uh, corporate um, donors and, and very much a part of our family. I've always liked to yeah. think, and this is another point, we, we, we're about um, relationship fundraising, building relationships with people, with companies like St. James's Place, so that they feel part of us and I talk it. I always talk about we are one family trying to do this. We're trying to create other families. Um, and um, my goodness, you know that that was a, a really lucky break for us when that happened. Yeah, because I I came in uh, into into the foundation uh, two thousand eight, so it was around the sort of financial crisis and. I, I admittedly hadn't heard of you guys until that point. And, um, but the, the, the fervent support from the committee that I walked into, um, who, I, in, in fact, on day one, I think it was on day two, when I, I went to the first meeting, the trustees had sort of talked about giving a big capital uh, chunk of money to, to, to another cause. And actually the big question was, what would that, how would that impact Hope and Homes? Yeah. Because they're all fervent supporters. Uh, and and I, what I loved actually, because um, there's a big one of the real issues for charities is um, restricted and unrestricted yeah. funds, or in New Zealand it's called tagged or untagged. But um, ha having your core costs, because you know without the core costs covered, the lights being kept on, um, you know some administrative costs which I know are low for you, but you know being covered, um, you know it it makes it very difficult to to function and have the impact that you do. And hope and um, hope and owns were getting that sort of support from. Um, St James's Place, which is brilliant, and it kind of uh, was quite unusual at that time. I think that sort of giving, and actually trust-based giving as well, which over a multiple of years. So all those factors, I think, are hugely important to, especially evolving or growing charities, trying to do more and um, you know have more impact without that sort of continuity. Exactly. That yeah. it's really tricky. Uh, the commitment, um, you know, year after year, yeah. has has been you know it's been so important to us. Um, uh, but uh, an interesting thing about St. James's Place at that time was that they trusted us to use the money wisely. And I said, look, um, 
I will take anybody from St. James's Place out to any country you're supporting and show you how your money is, is working and how. And um, so I, I was like a tour guide. I took numerous uh, partners from the, uh, from the company out to various countries and they became really our ambassadors uh, throughout the organization. Um, but, but they trusted and they actually initially yeah. didn't want to know much detail about you know where every penny is going but they trusted us that we were actually producing the goods and i remember going out to sierra leone with one one party and um i was very very worried you know about the bookkeeping in sierra leone because it was all done in a you know on a in a, in a an exercise book by a very competent um account manager um but he just switched over to a digital, you know, sort of a, got it all on, on the computer. And I thought, this is amazing. So I said, we were having this meeting and I said, well, what could one, one of you, I presume, would like to um, actually go actually go through the books with this guy? And there were about half a dozen of St. James's Place partners there. And they all looked at each other and they said, no, no, no. We, we don't understand accounts. <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they didn't want to have a look and eventually one chap said yes i'll have a look because this chap was so proud this year the only guy who just sort of done all this work prior to coming up was so proud and it was quite funny yeah it's worth clar worth clarifying so, so i hope you enjoyed the episode so far i thought we'd take a quick break and just give some context. So St. James's Place, which is formerly JL Rothschild Assurance, I used to work for them. It's a wealth management company in the, in the UK. It's now part of the FTSE 100. They have a charitable foundation, which I used to head up, and we were big supporters of Hope and Homes for Children. The next part of the interview focuses on Mark Cook, the founder or co-founder with his wife, and I thought of put to him about founder syndrome which actually I don't believe he actually had. But it really goes into what that was like for Mark uh, and um, it's a really good second part of the show. Enjoy. Founder has a certain way of doing things. Maybe they're really good at starting something, but they're not really good at running something. So as soon as HR issues kick in, you know, it's outside the skill set. Or, or maybe actually, you know, they that just needs a different person but that founder has a difficulty letting go i i on the scale of one to ten of founder syndrome i i never sensed that from you you were always happy to get good people around you and when the time's right you hand it over um and sitting here you know like knowing your current ceo mark waddington um absolute fantastic choice of of ceo and he's kind of taken the the charity on on several levels um Tell, tell me about that sort of founder syndrome for you, yeah, what that looks like. You're and absolutely right. I think there is a graveyard somewhere with the, the tombstones of founders who of charities who started it off with great passion and then hung on too long. We're not prepared to let it go. We're not prepared to change, uh, move with the times. And I was I was made very aware of this you know, as of. of about sort of seven or eight years, people were saying, "How long are you going to go on for?" And um, I think our trustees were also getting a little bit sort of twitchy because 
you know, we were a multi-million pound organization by this stage. And, you know, Caroline and I didn't have the experience, the expertise. I mean, I've been a soldier for years and money, money's never interested me. It was all about the, the impact that it was having. And it, it just, suddenly we realized one day, you know, I think it's time to hand over. And we've done 10 years, absolutely, you know, nonstop. Um, it had totally dominated every waking moment of our lives. Um, and it was time for somebody to come in fresh to have a look at everything. And you're right, it's all the issues, all the administrative issues, which I had neglected because what we were interested in was what was going on on the ground, getting the money in and getting out there, as quick, uh, getting it to the people who needed it. Oh, to hell with people you know working for us we we didn't do annual reviews and things like this and um uh, you know the uh, uh, and if you're running an organization like you know it it, it is a it is a business but i've always said sorry I, i'm digressing here a bit but i've always said to every member of the staff um including today i, I get this message the whole time to the fundraisers in particular look you're not here to raise money. The reason you're here is to, to support the most vulnerable children in the world by giving them a love of a family. Never forget that that is why you're here. Don't get so sort of, I've got to raise this money, I've got to raise money. It's why you're doing it that is the important thing. And uh, yeah. anyway, so the trustees sort of agreed after some time. They didn't need much, you know. I think uh, we jumped before we were pushed um, and we were very lucky to find First of all, another chap called Rick Fulsham came in for six years, and he's yeah he steadied the ship, yeah, um, put Rick. into place yeah. all those things that um, you know we had never done, all the administrative things, and you know, and it was rather like a ship going into to dry dock for a bit, um, and then he after six years he said, look, I've done my bit, and then we were very lucky to get Mark Waddington, who had been chief executive for War Child, and he came in like a sort of a jet engine, a sort of nuclear explosion, and then they came in, and um, and you know he he's just taken it as you said to another level because he he had that his his he was a lifelong um, charity guy. I mean, it's, all his career had been working with various charities, enormous amount of experience. But the important thing for us was to he might have this experience, but really have the passion. And he really demonstrated very quickly that he was passionate about our cause, passionate about what we were doing. Um, and yeah, yeah, because he 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 almost didn't get the job, did he? He he won't mind me telling you the our audience this, but um, he I think he he rocked up for the first interview and um. Because he he's he's sort of um yeah, that's right. northern he's, I think from Derbyshire, isn't he? He's from. Uh, and he's quite happy to swear if if needed, uh, and he likes a pint and a, a chat at the pub. Uh, and he he told me what well, this could be wrong, but he told me he, he almost didn't get the job because um, he came across a bit too in your face. Would that be fair? Or no, is, no, that, no, is that um, that, 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 is, that, that is absolutely <laughs> true? Because um, you know um, we weren't used to a guy like him. In fact, it was the final interview, um, and um, there was a. There were a lot of people at interviewing, um, including one or two very smart ladies. Um, 
and uh, you know all the the other finalists have come in and sat upright in their chairs and you know looking frightfully smart and you know on best behavior and things like this and then mark came back pushed his chair back so sort of crossed his legs and you know you know and, and let out a few expletives and then he, then he used the f word um and um you know we all looked at each other we said we can't have a chief executive who's fucking and blinding around the place you know you know that's not how that's not the way we behave is it you know <laughs> because yeah yeah but but it's i it's, i think it's very like it's not very rare but it, it is rare to get someone as passionate as matt like he you know i could easily interview him almost as the founder of Hope and Homes. It's you and Caroline, but he's got that same, to me, he's got that same founder passion. And he, what, what I was evidence of, so, so, you know, having worked with you guys for a decade when I was at St. James's Place running the Charitable Foundation, he, he had this real think, think big kind of mentality. So it was, um, we evolved from early days of, you know, maybe funding some closures in Ukraine and some building of some small family homes to actually join with me and other funders um, to, you know, attract a whole lot more capital to completely transform Ukraine and work with the government or Romania or wherever it was um, on a, on a huge scale. In fact, you know, screw just Eastern Europe, let's go for global. Um, And he kind of took people on that journey, which is, which is, you know, pretty amazing. Um, and, and not never for, for me, you know, you guys trying to um, gain vanity, you know, that sort of vanity metric. It was always about your impact and purpose, which is, which is fantastic. What, what was it like? So you and Caroline, you've, you, you know, you're, you've got, you're living your lives. Um, you've got this charity did you feel the the sort of burden of because fundraising just is a relentless task, isn't it? But did you find that quite burdensome? And and you at some stage you thought we you know we don't want this part of our lives. We want to play a role, but we don't want to be responsible for for multiple decades. Decades. Um, um, for, for yeah, the I always or, thought or was that, that never a huge issue. As long as I had the the passion and the ability to motivate people to to support us, then I would. I'd be going on forever more, um, but I mean, it, it did. It, it did, I suppose, take its toll. I was out most nights of the week, talking somewhere, you know, to groups of people, a lot of rotary meetings, a lot of meetings around the country for various people. Um, and you know, I rather thought, well, nobody else can do it as well as I can. But of course, we could, and and we recruited people who were equally as passionate and as eloquent. But we made. Johnny Shaw, that they went out to the countries, they got that personal um, thing. Um, you know, they had to have that personal experience. You, you, you've got to have it in your heart and you've got to have the, the stories to tell from your personal experience. Um, but so uh, it, it was a gradual process. It was quite lucky because we handed over to Rick um, and he took over and I had an enormous amount of respect for him. Um, and he, um, uh, and we had a little office in, in the main office, so Caroline and I were still there. We were just uh, uh, a part of the continuity. People would come and talk to us about things. We would meet uh, people. He, we, I made a point of never doing anything without asking. Don't, don't say, I want to go and do this. Um, you know, ask, get the chief executive, whether it was Rick or Mark, it said, look, 
do you think would you mind going to speak to so and so because I think you know you would you know um, you know he'd like to meet you and this is what happened so we we've still and it still does happen I mean I you know still Mark will say you know can you have a chat so and so and what's you know and um, we and he's been very good like that in including us. Um, in you know publications that still go out, you know that, that are news and things, um, and people know that we are still here. We feel part of it. Um, I share I share his PA with him. Uh, we have a wonderful PA called Helen, and um, you know she she keeps us both. So it's a um, we're we're we have no power. We can't say you know what what should be done. If he asks us, we we talk about it, um, but. Um, yeah, it was a, an evolution. It, it, it doesn't. It wasn't a sudden revolution. And I, I've seen this happen in some charities, and you probably have too, where uh, a new new brush comes in um, and sweeps out the old, and um, everyone says, "Oh God, it's not the same as it was." It was. Uh, it was a very gentle sort of moving on, and keeping people informed of what was going on. Yeah. And I've sort of, I've dangled something and didn't really explain it properly for our audience. But so going back to this is your life. So what, what I did a bad job of doing is connecting this is your life with Hope and Hope, uh, with St. James's Place, because that our directors um, had seen you on This Is Your Life. Um, well, I mean, um, I guess life, most of your listeners have never heard life. of This Is Your Life because it it hasn't been on they, the they television now. It was a very popular <laughs> program at the time when they would surprise somebody, um, uh, ambush them literally, ambush them somewhere, and um, uh, have been working for in in, our, in my case for a couple of years in the background, getting people together who had had an impact on my life. So you suddenly end up on a stage somewhere um, uh, being filmed, and your life is sort of brought to you. Um, and Caroline had been part of this secret for 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 two years. I mean, initially they said they wanted to feature me on this program, and she said, "No, no, he hasn't done enough. You know, <laughs> come back in a year's time." And so years later they said, "Well, what do you think now?" And she said, "Okay." <laughs> so, and it was an amazing experience. Of course, it was because they had people from my childhood. You know, one of the one of the things actually, when I was a child, my parents. It was just after the war. Um, took in a couple of Austrian boys who'd lost their father, um, and they he came they came to stay with us, uh, two brothers, um, and um, for twelve weeks in the summer, and then we went out there, and then we they came back every year, and they became part of our family. And I sometimes at the back of my mind, I think actually this is where I learned a little bit about compassion, and you know, and and, they, and these two boys, um, fifty years later. Um, you know, there they were, standing on the stage in front of me, growing men, and you know, was in their seventies. Um, no, it, 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 yeah, um, but it was uh, fantastic. I mean, it was seen, yeah. it was a program that was seen by millions of people, and of course, you know, then um, it, and that sort of publicity was free. It was, I mean, you couldn't you couldn't afford that as a charity, that sort of publicity, so, um, and and it, all, all sorts of. Mm. Um, well-known people spoke out in favour, you know, including you know, Lord Carrington and Paddy Ashdown and various other people who are well-known within, you know, UK. Um, you know, spoke uh, and, and sort of um, 
you know, gave us a tick at the credibility box, which was worth a, a lot of money. Yeah, absolutely. And what the world's changed recently and sort of zooming back up to, you know, 2020 um, and COVID-19. And I know it's been a huge uh, challenge for your, your charity and they've responded extremely well. Um, before we go into that, because I want to I sort of get your take on, on the role that they're playing, but, um, you know, how, how have you found it on a personal note? And, um, you know, have you sort of found some good out of the lockdowns and the, the health concerns? And, you know, because... Uh, life has um, changed, I think, life has pretty changed, dramatically yeah. for most people. Caroline and I are very lucky in that we live in the country. We have a, a very nice house and garden, and I'm looking out now at the, the trees in the garden. And, but it's the people who live in cities, in small flats, who've got families, and maybe dysfunctional families. I mean, these are the people who are really suffering, and my heart agrees for. I mean, they, we, we, we've actually quite enjoyed it because, you know, it, it meant that we... For the first time, really, since we've lived here for 30 years, uh, we've had time just to enjoy life in, in our own space, in the garden, um, and watch things, watch the flowers and the birds, um, you know, uh, uh, develop and grow and, you know, have families. And, um, um, and it's, we've been incredibly lucky. Um, and of course, with modern communications now, and we, you know, our office here, which is quite near where where we live, which is in in an old barn, which we sort of converted. Um, nobody's in there. They come in, a couple of people come in every day to work the place, but everybody's working by uh, at home, um, having regular Zoom meetings, um, and um, a lot of time that was spent on people travelling into work actually is now, you know, they, they get up and, and make the coffee and go straight onto the, the computer instead of getting on a train to come here or driving an hour and a half, as I know you used to do, mm. to get to work each day. I mean, the amount of hours wasted by people driving backwards and forwards um, was, was enormous. Um, and, but Mark Wannington, has, our chief executive, has um, been very clever, very astute and in, in maintaining the momentum of the charity and the income coming in, and mainly from the big corporates and St James's Place is still you know, our biggest and most loyal. Um, and um, so our programmes have continued, but of course all the countries that we're working in, they have their own COVID problems. And so um, it's supporting the most vulnerable families um, which has become the priority for us, whilst at the same time getting more children out of these institutions and taking uh, the governments of the countries that we work in now, lots of countries around the world, um, the latest being Nepal, um, taking them on this journey of, of institutional care for children and showing them that there's a far better far more humane and a far cheaper in the long run system of childcare. And that is based on the love of families. Yeah. And the, you know, COVID and institutions, not a good mix. Uh, thankfully, it's not 
hitting the you know child mortality in in the same way, which which is good. Um, but you know, if a if COVID gets into an institution, it's it's it kind of spreads quickly, which isn't good. Um, and also, one observation I I'd kind of made is all the good work that you guys have done um, over the years to 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 reduce institutional care. You know, potentially because government's getting distracted, putting resources elsewhere, a good excuse to stop stuff. Um, and I love Mark's approach to keep the sort of foot down on and the pressure on those governments um, to to not do that. Uh, and that, and I think that's where your role is hugely important right now, is is that continued publicity yeah, advocacy I absolutely agree. I've always side said, of things. You know, Would you agree? Every every year there's another disaster somewhere. It just happens that. Uh, COVID is the latest and biggest, but um, and it's always the children, the, the most vulnerable children, who are the ones who go back to the bread uh, at the back of the bread queue the whole time. Because if a country's had a war, you know, trying to rebuild a country after a, after a war or famine or disaster, um, you know, the children don't have a voice. The the vulnerable children don't have a voice, and that's where we come in. And um, and try and give them that voice and say, help, you know, these children are the future of your country. And we have to keep, you know, and when we're quite used to doing that in countries like Sierra Leone and Rwanda and Bosnia and Albanian places where, you know, they've come through a terrible experience and, and don't forget the children. I remember um, in Rwanda, uh, in very early days, when I first, my first visit, um, I made contact when I got there with the, uh, the chap from um, uh, um, one of the big children's charities. Uh, um, uh, anyway, um, and uh, he, I said, look, we're coming, uh, we're coming out to help out here. And he said, oh, thank God for that. He said, I have just had a message this morning from headquarters in London that we're, we're, now, the, now the war is over. Now um, everything's getting back to normal. Um, we're, we're to withdraw. He said, now is the time when the children need us more than ever in rebuilding the country. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's that's very apt to this day. I mean, I think this probably is a fairly good time to, to draw to a conclusion, but I just want to congratulate you, um, Mark and, and Caroline, for... Um, starting a charity learning from your mistakes um but also but equally for that charity to be you know so strong 30 years on is huge testament to you and your choices of successes rick and then mark but also you know the wider team um the delia pops of the world and 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 others who have kind of impacted the what you do so brilliantly um so congratulations on that it's been a real pleasure to to chat and um i know we we uh had a false start last night but we got here t today or tonight yeah for me. great to talk um, to you and, too and Mark, because you really good to as i said earlier well. you have far more experience with charities than we do you've seen a lot you've seen the successful ones and and you can um, you can analyze why they're successful and i think you know i'd like to think we have been successful and that that maybe some of the reasons um, why we have been have been, you know, people will grasp today. I think we've made so many errors on the way, looking back on it, uh, things I, I wish I had done, which I didn't do, um, because it's easy to be wise in hindsight. Um, 
But another important point is always to, I think, to, to admit your area, uh, error and explain to people why you're doing things. Don't try and hide the truth, whatever it, whatever it is in the charity. We've always been open and said, look, we got this wrong. We got it wrong. We shouldn't have been building orphanages. For goodness sake, that was the biggest U-turn of any charity. A massive thank you for joining me on this episode of Purposely Podcast. I'm sure you enjoyed hearing from Mark Cook as I enjoyed speaking to him. To go from building orphanages to kind of tearing them down basically is incredible. Uh, and um, I know they're doing amazing things out there, particularly it's a really difficult time around COVID. Um, if you get a chance to promote this podcast to friends, families and colleagues, if you like what you're hearing, please do. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Don't forget, if you're on Apple Podcasts, leave a review. It really helps me build my audience. Um, and also, if you've got a spare moment, check out purposelypodcast.com and uh, more episodes coming. Have a good day. Good evening. Bye-bye. listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.